0: This is the podcast for God's Honest Truth. These are stories that are told by members of First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. Each time we get together, we have a theme, and the members of our church tell stories based around that theme. I hope you enjoy. Well, good evening. It's wonderful to see everybody here. I'm so glad that you could come out for uh, tonight's God's Honest Truth. For those of you who haven't been here before, I just want to give you a brief introduction as to what this is. So. About two years ago, uh, I thought, you know, it would be really good if we had the opportunity to share stories of our lives with each other, uh, being that we all come from different places. We come together on Sundays a lot of times, but we don't know a lot about each other's lives. And so I thought, you know what, this would be a good opportunity. And. haven't been a big fan of the moth story hour have you ever heard of npr's moth okay so i was a big fan of that and i thought you know what we can do something similar which we call god's honest truth which just so we're clear not all the stories are about god we're just using it because you know you're just trying to tell the truth when you come up here so that to say we've done a lot of these and uh tonight we are continuing that tradition we have a number of wonderful storytellers for you tonight our theme this evening is, my first day, stories of walking in for the first time. When we are done tonight, I just want to be clear that we're going to dismiss the storytellers. They'll go out into the narthex and then you can go talk to them about the stories that they told. And uh, There's going to be co- cookies and some, uh, some drinks out there, so we ask you to go out, uh, talk to the storytellers once they're done and uh, have a good time and mingle with each other so to get us started off this evening we're going to have bill Lyon come up he's going to tell his story my first time in a long time in moscow would you please welcome him to the stage
1: Pospěším Alex, dobre večer. Během své bytové a já vám učím něco Já už po zík mnoho let už jsem tam u násad švédské skóre. Zajímám, avtice Pepsi. Já přivol mnoho věmi v Moskvě. Já chci Mayom Obitya. Thank you, Alex. My name is Bill Lyon, and I speak a little bit of Russian. I studied Russian many years ago in high school. And in 1974, I had the opportunity to travel to the Soviet Union uh, with my high school classmates. Then in 1992, while I was working for Pepsi, I spent a lot of time in Moscow. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about my experiences. So I want to start with a question. Uh, Are any of you old enough to remember a seminal event that occurred in Eastern Europe in 1989? Okay, call it out. Excellent. The Berlin Wall came down. I'm glad I'm not the only one that remembers. Well, two years later, on December 26, 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved, and it was replaced with an entity called the Commonwealth of Independent States. Now, those changes brought tremendous political freedoms to millions of people living in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. And those changes also created wonderful economic opportunities for Western businesses that were looking to expand their markets. So in 1992, I was working for Pepsi, and they offered me a job as the financial liaison for our business in the Soviet Union. So I have to go off on just a little bit of a tangent here and tell you that Uh, my dream job always has been and always will be to play in the National Basketball Association. (laughs) But if we're being totally honest with each other, I fear that time is running out on me on that one. (laughs) Fortunately, I've had a backup dream job. And that dream job was to somehow use my interest in Russia and combine it with a business career. So effectively, Pepsi was offering me my dream job. So needless to say, I said yes, and I was given two assignments. So for the first assignment, uh, in describing that, I have to give you a little bit of Pepsi-Cola history. So uh, Pepsi had actually been sold in the Soviet Union since 1994, when Richard Nixon handed a bottle of Pepsi to Nikita Khrushchev. And for 18 years, Pepsi was selling syrup to Russia or to the Soviet Union. Now actually, we couldn't sell it to the Soviet Union because their currency, the ruble, had no value outside of the Soviet Union. So we had to trade the Pepsi syrup for a product that was produced in the Soviet Union that they were actually very, very good at producing and which had a lot of value in the United States. Can anybody think of a product that might (laughs) fit that description? Uh, absolutely. So, vodka, and in particular, Stelichnaya Vodka. So, pepsi was actually um, the sole importer and distributor of Stelichnaya Vodka in the United States. And that agreement worked very, very well for us for a long time. Well, the distillers in the Soviet Union got a peek at the value of their vodka in the United States, and they got greedy, and they decided they wanted a bigger piece of the economic pie. So I was given the assignment of working with those distilleries to ensure that we kept our very lucrative deal intact. Well, I quickly discovered that just like you can't stand in the way of Mother Nature, you cannot stand in the way of market forces once they're unleashed. And the distilleries started demanding more and more concentrate, syrup, for their vodka, and our business in the Soviet Union got less and less profitable. So now I was 0 for 1 in my dream job. But I had another project that I worked on. Um, uh, Pepsi-Cola had been sold in the Soviet Union only in glass bottles. And so we believed that if we could begin selling our product in 2-liter plastic bottles, you can probably picture those bottles. They look like the little torpedoes. So we thought if we could start selling our product in those bottles that we could greatly expand our business. So I was asked to help uh, build, develop the first plastic bottle filling plant in the Soviet Union. And so we formed a joint venture and we got the plant up and running and we watched as our sales went through the roof. We were killing it and at first we could not figure out why. And so we did a little digging and we discovered that for the Russian consumer, the idea of having a plastic two liter resealable bottle was worth way more than the dollar that we were charging for our Pepsi product. So they were buying these bottles, hopefully consuming the Pepsi, and then using the bottles to store everything from gasoline to motor oil to homebrew to soup base to drinking water. So, needless to say, uh, that project was a phenomenal success, and I was now batting 500 in my dream job. When I would travel to the Soviet Union, I would stay for two weeks at a time, and so that gave me a lot of opportunity to discover a lot of first times. I enjoyed uh, getting out and exploring the city and mingling amongst uh, the citizens of Moscow. I Traveled on the subway all over the city. I found pickup basketball games. I loved going to this massive market in his mile of a park. One time uh, when I was there over the weekend, I traveled, walked around the grounds of the 1980 Olympic Games. Those were the games that the United States boycotted because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Sometimes uh, in my exploring, I would run across other expats who were there also building their business. And I can remember uh, meeting a gentleman from McDonald's, and he was there trying to figure out how to source ground beef locally, because it was very expensive for them to import ground beef. So I asked him how it was going, and he said, not so good. As it turned out, the Soviet meat producers were in the practice of mixing tree bark with their ground beef. To make it go further and i'm not sure exactly what mcdonald's quality standards are but apparently they draw the line at tree bark (laughs) in their hamburger i found the russian people to be guarded but once you got to know them they were actually really friendly Um, i was at business meetings in the morning that started with a friendly shot of vodka i had dinners in the modest apartments of my uh, pepsi colleagues in Russia. We'd celebrate happy hour on a Friday afternoon drinking bad Russian beer in the office. And by the way, I discovered that bad and Russian beer is actually redundant. (laughs) So I had some uh, wonderful experiences, met some wonderful people. I was invited to a uh, wedding in Russia by one of my work colleagues. Uh, That experience provided me with a year's worth of first times all by itself. I can remember looking at the dinner buffet and thinking it looked like that scene from the Indiana Jones movie where the table was filled with all these exotic dishes and you desperately looked for one that seemed somewhat familiar. They had, instead of a live band at this wedding, they had a live comedian performing, and that was the first time I've ever seen a live comedian perform. At a wedding. (laughs) So, uh, while I really, really enjoyed my trips uh, to Moscow, I love the work, I love the experiences. It was difficult to be away from home for two weeks at a time. Tyler and Annie were in preschool, and so Sue had to hold down the fort uh, all by herself. I can feel her nodding somewhere. Yeah, right, you remember that? Yeah, so. Um, So it was difficult. I loved being in Moscow and then I loved being back home. I want to close by sharing a couple pieces of advice that one of my Pepsi colleagues gave me, someone who traveled uh, way more than I did. The first thing he said is that when you're gone from home for that length of time, your family develops a routine that doesn't include you. And while they'll be happy to see you when you come home, it can take a couple days to get plugged in again. And I found that to be true. The second piece of advice he gave me was, if your children are expecting some sort of gift when you come home, and of course they were, you're better off picking up some toys at Target and putting them in the trunk of your car before you leave. (laughs) That way you can avoid the agony of wandering through duty-free, 30 minutes before your flight departs, trying to find something to buy besides cigarettes and alcohol. I want to close with just a, a parting comment. I'll say, spasiva za to, stov i vechera. Thank you for listening, and have a good evening.
0: All right. So our second storyteller tonight is Richard Scott, and he's gonna come up and tell his story to go or not to go, my curiosity of the church experience. If you would, let's welcome Richard up to the stage.
2: I did not accept Christ until I was a senior in college at the University of Alaska Fairbanks that, that, that was quite an experience up there you know I really didn't recognize uh, this Christian exposure to me until that time. Later I looked back on it and saw where Christ was, uh, when God was subliminally encouraging me and preparing me for later life. Finally in college at the age of about 24, I met this girl named Cheryl, and she invited me to church. I figured, well, to get to know her better, this, this is a good way to do it, you know. So, so I said, yes. <laughs> the seed of curiosity of the church experience had been planted in me at that time. Before I continue, I need to give you a brief description of the topography of the University of Alaska. Down the, the, about one hundred and fifty feet or so above the this intersection of two main roads was the main campus of uh, University of Alaska uh, going uh, there was a staircase about one hundred and fifty feet the center about one hundred and fifty feet down to that intersection. The university of actually not the university the University Baptist Church was a few hundred feet away. Incidentally, that is probably the furthest north Southern Baptist uh, church in the United States. The main, uh, besides that ramp, going uphill, there was an incline up to the upper dorms where I was living. I was told. Um, excuse me and I agreed to meet Sunday morning and we would go down to her dorm and we would go down together well I went down to the lower campus, went to her dorm and she had already left (laughs) what am I to do now? (laughs) I could trudge back up the hill to my security in my dorm room or maybe just for chance, maybe I should check out this church on a curiosity basis. So I started toward the church. There was a vac- vacillations were very remarkable, and I still remember it today as I'm telling this. You'd st- I could walk 400 feet and then I'd stop. I'd look around, I'd think, I can still go to the dorm, or I can still go to the church. <laughs> Christian, uh, Christian curiosity seemed to win out each time. So I'd walk another 400 feet and repeat. Another 400 feet, repeat again. And finally I got to that staircase, the long staircase down. I knew I had to make a final decision. I chose to go to the church. What did I find in that church once I got there? Well, I found Cheryl and her boyfriend, and she humbly apologized for the mix-up. I found several other friends, both um, students and professors and so forth that were on the campus that also went to this church that I hadn't known about. I, they had... <clears throat> mm-hmm. Let's see... Mm-hmm. Um, and all, everyone I met was perfectly friendly, outgoing, uh, including the pastor. He he was very welcoming. <clears throat> Some of them later in, in, down the road, they'd invite me to ride with them to, to church and back. This was often the case when there was oh, about 30 below for a whole week at a time. <laughs> the, I remember the building. It was a Pretty standard church building with a very simple sanctuary. They, they had a basement and it seemed to serve them fine. There were a few rooms for Christian education. But I, the thing I really remember about that sanctuary was um, Every one in the congregation got to sit on these meadow-folding chairs, <laughs> guaranteed to keep you uh, awake, even through the <laughs> longest sermon, which Baptists are known for. <laughs> the, and the other thing I found out was that uh, they like to eat, too. There's a potluck meal after after the service, good good indication. But as far as the service itself, I really don't remember much about the service. I don't remember about the scope or the content of the sermon, or even my reaction. For some reason, I can remember the, the, the physical things, but for some reason that um, has escaped me. I figured probably the reason I came back was the friendliness of all the people in the, con- in the congregation. So I did come back in uh, subsequent weeks, and that's when I started picking up the, some of the message and what the Southern Baptist Church was like. But... And but the most vivid memory, though, of that first morning, though, is still the walking journey down to the church, continually making that choice: to go to the dorm or go check out this experience in the church choosing to continue to church let me venture in God's long scheme of things of putting me here in this dynamic congregation thank you
0: all right Next up, <laughs> next up. Um, so sometimes, you know, generally speaking, we don't have uh, pastors tell stories. This is really for you all. Um, and but we did have one staff member, and he doesn't really get to speak too often. He speaks through his music. But Adam came to me and he said, "Hey, you know, if you need somebody, I think I have a story that I could tell on this." And I said, "Come on, you're welcome to do it." So would you welcome Adam Hendrickson up here?
3: Well, first of all, I want to give a brief update. Uh, My daughter, Lily, fell asleep on the car ride home and successfully transferred to her bed, so she's still asleep. (laughs) And mom gets a bit of a night off, so. Um, And just for a bit of clarification, because it's a bit woven into my story, uh, my title is actually that um, it's Two Sides, One Coin. Uh, there's actually only one side to my story, and that is my side to the story. So, Uh, to understand the most compelling uh, first day on the job for me, I need to tell you a little bit about uh, where and how I grew up. I grew up in a rural farming community in Indiana called Brookston. Uh, Brookston's population is about 1,000 maybe up to 1,200 now. Uh, Maybe a better way to represent it is that we have one stoplight. And uh, Brookston is about 15 miles from Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. And I grew up in what was called and is still called the uh, Federated Church of Brookston. And what happened was at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the American Baptist denomination uh, joined forces with the PC USA, and that's kind of how I got started within the Presbyterian Church. And from the beginning, I think this subconsciously distilled this idea in my head uh, that there are truly two sides to one coin. Uh, the pastor who occupied the bulk of my time growing up there, his name was uh, Dr. Leland McReynolds, and he was a retired Air Force chaplain. When he retired from uh, that position, he came back to his hometown of Brookston, Indiana. Uh, There, he was the kind of person that, um, and is still the kind of person that uh, no one could say a bad thing about this man. He was quite the, the person to look up to. And my grandmother played piano in the church and my aunt played organ. So I was always paying attention to the music and they loved um, gospel just as much as classical whether it be Bach or Haydn or Mozart or Beethoven Uh, until he retired from the position every time I came home uh, Lee would always have joyful joyful be Uh, joyful joyful we adore thee be the opening hymn because that was his little nod to me and it was something else Um, I didn't always pay full attention to the sermons, uh, but when I did, he was usually talking about Bob Dylan or Paul McCartney or Elvis Presley or Johnny Cash. Uh, You better believe I paid attention. (laughs) This was sort of the beginning of this swirling of musical influences trying to find cohesion uh, in my brain, body, and soul. And rock and roll in the church, that was my life growing up. It still is a big part of my life today. I I played in many rock bands throughout my teenage years, into my 20s. I'm in my 30s now. Still hope to get back into that one day. Um, By the time I was 24, I had received my bachelor's in music degrees and music performance, and opera specifically, I still did not really have a clear path that I could see, but I knew that having this classical understanding of music would just reinforce the modern tendencies that uh, my soul cried out for. It was always something classic and something modern. In the summer of 2008, I attended a music festival in Bayview, Michigan. I was performing in the opera Carmen. Uh, I have many, many stories that I could tell about this experience, but the one that I really want to shed, uh, to share with you is that I, it was near the end of the run, near the end of our time there, and a fairly successful opera singer at the time had gotten to know me a little better, and uh, we were sharing a drink after a performance, and he said, you know, you know, one day you're gonna have to make a choice. You're gonna have to choose between your love of classical music and these rock and roll tendencies that you have. And at the time, it it felt very prophetic and it it haunted me for a long time. It just kinda sat as this devil on my shoulder. Fast forward to 2012. I'm less than a year out of graduate school and I get a call from First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights and they want me to be a part-time director of a contemporary worship service where you have a praise band with instruments predominantly associated with rock and roll, but they want you to play music that would be strictly classified as Christian hey, I'm all about it. Let's go. Let's see what we can do. So the topic for tonight is one's first day on the job. The truth is, since, I've started in, since I started in 2012, I have had several first days on the job. Uh, my very first Finding Grace service was on June 17th of 2012. It was a packed chapel. Lots of energy, lots of excitement. Next Sunday, packed chapel, lots of energy, lots of excitement. Sunday after that,
0: boom.
3: <laughs> yeah. Dropped by more than half. And it wouldn't start to tick up till about January 2013, following year. After that Christmas of 2012. Uh, the then interim pastors, Barb Gorski and Beth fries they reached out to me and they were like, what, what can we do? I mean, we, we want to try something. And I, I said, well, how about a little rock and roll? And, and they were like, good, do that. And I was nervous because, you know, I hadn't even been out of school for a full year. And this job, this part-time position was really my first chance to find um, not only professional footing in the world but really f- financial footing i mean as a musician, when you can get consistent work i mean that i mean for better or worse it, it's it 's like a drug, <laughs> and this one you kind of had to feed um, and here i was i was I was painting a target on myself, and you know the thing about targets is that. Once it's on you, you got to be prepared for people to fire shots because they will. May 12th, 2013, Barb Gorski and I are preparing a service in the chapel. I think it was Mother's Day. And um, she was asking me about what Paul might have been singing when he was in prison and whatever scripture we were reading. And I was like, wouldn't it be interesting if we sort of imagined him singing Beatles songs about love, you know, about the message that he was really wanting to preach. And she was like, I really like that. I really like that. And like I said about painting targets on yourself, you know, the what led to this was the first uh, Beatles Sunday that we put on and I want you to think of it in the context of This is all secular music for a sacred service. That's a target, but it's something classic with something modern. As the date approached, all I really could think of was the backlash. I mean, this being a church and a new idea, um, you know, going to perform the music of the Beatles. You know, the band that housed... Dun, dun, dun. John Lennon. You know, the guy who told people that maybe there is no heaven? You know, the guy who during a news conference was merely stating a statistic at the time when he said that the Beatles records were selling more than Bibles at the time. And you know what the response to his factual statistic was? Americans were burning the records of the Beatles. And here I was. I want to sing his music in church. And you know, I'm 34 now. And believe it or not, I've, I've actually been working at part-time positions at churches within the music ministry programs since I was 19, since my undergrad at Ball State in Muncie at First Presbyterian Church, Muncie, Indiana. And even at that early onset, I was always grappling with these opinions and viewpoints shared to me about secular music and such. And it was just always um, didn't feel right. And I remember it was on my, one of my last days that I was singing there. And the pastor there, Ronald Naylor, he was in his 60s at the time. He, he, he called me into his office. He pulled out a CD. He's playing this and it's, it's, it's punk rock. It sounds like the Ramones or maybe even The Clash. And he's looking at me with this huge grin on his face. And he's shaking his head and I'm like, who is this, this is really good. He's like, this is me. <laughs> this is me in the 50s, when I was a teenager, and he wouldn't give me the CD. He didn't... and I think that tells you something. He he didn't want people to know, but he wanted me to know. And it just... all these things, the way they line up. And you see, I see the logic in labeling music sacred. I mean, especially especially if it was deliberately written for a church. I understand that. I understand that genre. However, Labeling something as secular, as a way to keep it out of the church, that isn't helping masses of people by defining a genre. That's limiting. That's limiting potential. It's an imaginary line so that we can pick imaginary sides. Beatles Sunday was the most packed that that chapel has been since I've been here save for maybe this last Easter, actually. And this was my first day on the job. This is when everything became clear to me. Why I share the music that I share, why I represent myself in the way that I do, and it fully solidified why I don't pick imaginary sides or feel boxed in by imaginary lines or be beholden to imaginary prophecies like the one told to me in Bayview, Michigan, when I was told that I would have to make a choice between classical music and rock and roll. Instead, I chose both, and somehow managed to blur the line between these two seemingly opposing areas, both inside of the church and outside, to be honest. Something modern, Something classic. Two sides to one coin. Thank you.
0: All right, I'm gonna get Betty Arnold, I'm gonna help her come up here. And uh, what we're gonna do is she's gonna tell her story And Betty is actually our first, second time storyteller. We, uh, generally speaking, I keep people to one story. And then they can't come back ever again. (laughs) But Betty, she submits a story to me every time we do one of these. And, uh, And so this time I thought, you know what? Let's do it again. And I've erased my rule. Betty has erased my rule. If you want to do it again, you certainly can. So if you would, please welcome to the stage, Betty Arnold.
4: Thank you, Alex, but this is the last time. (laughs) In September of 1955, at the age of 22, with my BA in education and my Dutch Swedish Protestant background. I started my first teaching job at a Chicago public school. Now let's pause for a minute. A lot of you are thinking, how old is that woman anyhow? <laughs> well, subtract 1955 from 2019, take your uh, answer and add it to 22, and you'll know how old I am. Now I could, I could just tell you, but as an as a educator, it's best if you, Work it out yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. okay. (sighs) Sorry. Bidler Elementary School was a three-story red-bick brick building located on Walnut between Kesey Avenue and Lake Street. It served uh, the neighborhood. Uh, of uh, children from kindergarten through eighth grade. The uh, neighborhood was 95% black and 93% lower income. And uh, there was a playground with no play equipment and there wasn't a parking lot for teachers' cars, but that didn't bother me. I couldn't drive, didn't have a car. (laughs) Uh, I, I assume that the uh, townhouses across the street from Beidler were rental units, but I didn't wander the neighborhood because I sort of stood out. And um, I don't remember lawns or flower gardens, but I do remember the city trees, cottonwood poplar, tree of heaven that don't need much encouragement to grow. It reminded me a bit of the neighborhood where I grew up on the west side of Chicago. The uh, new teachers had a two-day orientation period. And after a while, I began to realize I wasn't prepared. I wasn't oriented into the neighborhood and to the children. And uh, one young woman did not return for the second day of orientation. Her friend, Maureen, said, I didn't think Julie would be back because she will only wear real jewelry. I, what, I thought, what does that have to do with teaching in an elementary school? And I think it meant that Julie and her family decided she deserved a better teaching environment. But I plodded on, oriented, prepared or not, wearing my one piece of real jewelry, a marquee cut diamond engagement ring. Thank you. Honey. <laughs> okay) um, So I plotted on, and after the orientation I was able to finally look at my students' enrollment cards, and I discovered that at least one-third of the students came from single-parent homes. And in my ignorance, I didn't realize that black men in the community didn't have the same equal employment opportunities. Uh, Most of the students, my students continued my orientation. They would talk about their big mama and their big daddy that came up from the old country. I'll translate. That meant grandma and grandpa moved north from Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama for a better life and for better jobs. The um, little girls and I would sometimes just have a chance to just chat and we would talk about all kinds of family things. One thing that was just hysterically funny for both of for the, the girls and I, my mama used to curl my hair with a curling iron and their mama straightened their hair with a curling iron. <laughs> for some reason, to eight and nine year olds and me, that was so funny. Uh, when we had art class I had to encourage the children not to leave their faces blank on the paper. I'd always say take a brown crayon and give your your people in your picture nice brown skin. Well one day a little boy came up to me and said teacher this crayon is your color and I looked at it and the color was flesh. And Brand new teacher, almost burst into tears. All skin is flesh. And I told him, well if you ever draw a picture of me, you can use this crayon to color my skin. Class size was 35 to 40, far too many for a beginning teacher, for any teacher. And, um... There were uh, master teachers that would come in and watch me teach. I never quite got that. (laughs) But they were not allowed to put up a bulletin board or mark a set of papers or tutor any of the children in my class that needed extra help. uh, This was at the order of Mrs. Quinn, the principal. With This little five-foot lady had an impossible job. The school was becoming more and more overcrowded. She had very few resources for tutoring. There were no sports, there was no art, there was no music. And she just did the best she could. Um, Families kept coming north from the old country, and the school became even more overcrowded and was put on double shift. A.M. classes, P.M. classes. I sometimes worked two shifts. And uh, over this one summer, a new school was built in that playground next to the school. Of course, that meant we didn't have a playground anymore. But even in, in the new school, there were still no special programs for these children. And recess was now Walnut Street with wooden sawhorses at each end to protect the children? I didn't get that either. Okay. Um, I have never been back to uh, Bydler School for my, where my first teaching experience occurred, but I recently Googled it, and um, things are much improved. Class size is under 30. There are two computer labs, a piano lab, an athletic program, and uh, after-school tutoring. But I think back 60 years, I still remember Julie with her real jewelry, and I wonder who made the best decision? Julie, who didn't come back, didn't teach in a Chicago public school, or me, who plotted on, plotted on, doing the best I could, wearing my one piece of real jewelry, but I got to work with and know a lot of wonderful boys and girls. Thank you.
0: All right, well, we've come to our last story of the evening. And we're going to have Donald Kosh come up, and he is going to do his story Too Stupid to Quit. Welcome him up to the stage, everybody.
5: Don't be nervous. Good evening. I am the youngest of four, um, which meant that on the Saturdays that my mother declared it to be Yussi Birling, the operatic tenor, Yussi Birling Awareness Day, my elder siblings had longer legs and they fled quickly. And I was I was in there with my mom. And I loved it. I loved the sound of this voice. Jussi Björling was uh, a a tenor, uh, Swedish tenor phenomenon that even Pavarotti tried to catch up with in terms of popularity and just sheer beauty of voice. And whereas the idea was that mom had caught me, no, I was there because I loved it, the sound. I didn't want to be an opera singer, I wanted to be a tenor. That's, the opera was the secondary part. I wanted to be a tenor. Now, tenors are 10% of the male population, 10%. So odds were stacked against me, but I had a low voice as a little child, which meant my transition wasn't very squeaky, and I just kind of stayed about the same, and so guess what? I became a tenor. Yay, thank you. Um, so this, these times spent with my mom just laying on the floor next to that crazy old RCA. How many had those RCAs? One box, one speaker. Uh, the, the phonograph was inside of his thing of beauty. Just listening to this and this sound. And so I knew what I wanted to do. There wasn't anything to do about it until your voice changed. And I was never in children's choirs. So by the time I got into high school, I joined, I joined Concert Choir. and. Uh, The choir director, Don Arnold, said, you know, it would probably be best if you would mouth the words. (laughs) Your voice is so ugly. (laughs) I had walked into a room and I ignored him and I uglied my way through this wonderful music that was new to me and I, I fell e- even more deeply in love with being a tenor and singing. Uh, time to go to, to, to college, and it was agreed upon that I would go to a little college in Mount Vernon, Iowa, uh, Cornell College, and has a teeny tiny music program, but that's not why I was there, because my parents wanted me to study something that I could fall back onto, right? That horrible situation where you're you're doing something you don't want to do at all. Where is the passion in doing something you don't want to do at all? So unbeknownst to them, uh, having gone to, to this little tiny college, I changed or I declared my major as a music major without telling my parents. And a month later, they called me up and said, we're listening to Domingo on the, on, on the television. Go ahead and, and, and be a music major. And I thanked them for the opportunity to make such a decision. <laughs> on my own. Well Cornell College was so small that I was a very big fish in a little pond, which is not a good thing if you're really serious about developing an instrument. You need people who are head and shoulders above you in terms of ability, really good people. And a program that has no graduate, no doctoral program is even worse. So I went, I needed to get to a bigger university, so I went back home to University of Colorado in Boulder, which had an enormous program, a really good program. Not the best program, which we'll add later, but I went back and I went went there for the next three and a half years and got my undergraduate degree in music, vocal performance, emphasis on opera, emphasis on tenor and uh, I was a slow bloomer. Now, vocally, that can be very, very misleading. If you take two children and you set them on the floor, six-year-olds, and you hand one a bucket of Duplo and another a bucket of Lego, who's gonna finish first? The Duplo, they're huge. There's very few pieces in the bucket. Everyone pats little Johnny on the head and they leave and pretty soon even Eddie's family are uh, They've they got to go too, and, and things like that. And by the time he finishes it, which is going to take a long time, there's hardly anybody there. It's the same with, with a complex voice. You sound awful when you're starting because it takes so much time to put all these pieces together. Meanwhile, the Duplo voices, the smaller voices, come together quick. They're winning competitions. You're left in the dust. And what do you have to hang on to? Just your will and desire to keep going. And people fall by the wayside. While I was at University of Colorado Boulder, uh, even my parents uh, were not on my team. In front of me, they would say to my voice teacher, "We don't hear it. Do you?" And it was awful. But she'd say, "No, he's got. He's got. Uh, he has potential, which is a very mm, word. <laughs> yeah, he's got potential. It might could happen." Um, so. I graduate and I think I've got to go into grad school because it takes time to put this stuff together. You've got to hide in school while you're trying to get your voice working. And so I announced to the head of the voice department I'd really like to attend uh, grad school here. And he says, don't waste your time. You're substandard. We will never, never consider you here. Ooh, that hurt. Did I quit? it just wasn't in me, I just didn't hear things like that. So I started auditioning for young artist programs, small level young artist programs, and and, and small roles in in, in local and, and regional opera houses, and I mean flat out turned down, I mean it was dismal, really dismal. About two weeks before term would begin, I happened to have the audacity to go to Northwestern University when there was nobody there it wasn't in session the dean of graduate studies Paul Aliopoulos was in his office and Norman Gilbranson was teaching up on the on the fourth floor nobody else was there and I said I'd like to audition and the guy the dean says well we're closed uh, there's no room in the inn. Uh, and and he makes a phone call up to Norman Goldbranson after he found out that I was a tenor. Tenors are rare. He sends me up to Norman. Norman says, what do you got? I said, no, I don't know much. I don't know much. And he said, well, try this. And so it was a, you know, a famous aria that I knew from Jussi Bjerling Saturdays. And, and I sang about three or four lines of it. And he says, that's enough. Picks up the phone says to Aliopoulos, full ride, get him. I was substandard at a lesser university a few weeks before, substandard, and at Northwestern, which was vastly better. I was full ride, get him. Aliopoulos said, we're out of money, we don't have any more, the money is out, and he said, get him. And the money was found, and I, was, I went back to Denver and drove back two weeks later and started my graduate school at Northwestern. Um, I went on to my doctoral work and finished, and now what? now what, well, for us, now what is apprentice programs, right? The bridge to bigger things. What's the biggest in the land? At that time, even bigger than the Met School, guess what? Lyric Opera. Lyric Opera of Chicago Young Artist Program. The best there was. Very few existed at that time, but it was the best there was. So I, I sent my tape. Right Back then, it was cassette tapes. I sent in my tape, and very quickly, I got back my letter of, you stink. All right? That's pretty clear. Um, The letter was from a man named Lee Shannon who ran the program at that time. And so I started doing auditioning for regional places and it was terrible. I didn't get anything. It was so, I mean, the lower, the smaller level things I seemed to just did dismally in. And then two weeks, again, before the finals for the new group of young artists, two weeks before I get a phone call from this same Lee Shannon Very clipped. Um, We need you to sing in the finals in two weeks, and we need you to have X number of Arias prepared. And uh, this is the time you'll be, and you will be given your time slot. Very, very clipped. Very no welcoming to this at all. So I appear, and mind you, I could. I was so fragile vocally; I couldn't sing very long. All right, and I. I, decided to, I, I just decided to sing a standard. I sang a big, the big La Donne mobile with a high B sustained at the end. I blew my voice out in the audition, not audibly. I sang pretty well, but I couldn't sing a note afterwards. Not a note. Plus, the nerves were enormous. You ought to try step it out onto that stage, 3,800 seats. It's, it's, it goes on forever. I'd never been there before. I'd never been in that building before. So I go there, and I have sung this piece, and in the course of of the program, there is another tenor who was was in there. Mind you, people who were returning from the year previous, they still had to audition, but it was pretty sure that they were going to be in there. There were only two vacancies. It was a bass and a mezzo soprano, not a tenor. Only two people were leaving. Now... All positions were up for grabs, but really the people who were, who were coming back, they had, they had dibs on it. There was this tenor who was great. He was great, and he was always late. Always late, and that really was a sore spot for Artis Kranich, the then general director, general manager of the whole, she- whole shebang down there at Lyric. And this guy was 20 minutes late from his time slot, without a jacket, without a tie, And he came in, blew the schedule of the Order of Singers, and came out, and when he sang, it was fabulous. He sang so well. Suddenly, the next step is in, and it's it's the callbacks, where people were being called back to the stage to sing a second number. I couldn't hardly speak. I had blown my voice out so badly. I had oversung so horribly. And everybody was being called back to sing a second number, everyone. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't even go out there and try to sing. It would be worse than just saying no to do that. So I'm looking for doors to exit. You know, How can I get out of this building, maybe jump into the river in the back? I don't know, but I got to figure out how to do this. Finally, this is getting scary. And finally, we're all called out on stage. I wasn't called for a second aria. I had escaped death. (laughs) And I come out there, and and here's these, they're calling them young stars of tomorrow, the young stellini of tomorrow. And I'm back in the curtains, hiding, because this this wasn't going to end well for me. And I knew that this tenor who had gotten there so late, I knew that he was going to get in. And then they started calling the names of the stars of tomorrow. Three to a part, total of 12. Three to a part, total of 12. Starting with Sopranos, three. Altos, three. They get to tenors. I'm embedded in the curtain by this time. My nose is sticking out of the end. And they call a name and another name, and the next name should have been this tenor's, and they called mine. They called mine. I found out later Artis Kranich had had it with this guy. She wasn't going to have anything to do with him, regardless of how he sang. Now, let me tell you a little story about Artis Kranick. Artis Kranick went to Northwestern, was a Christian scientist, and knew that my grandmother had been a very accomplished scientist practitioner. She knew my grandma's name. She had come to Northwestern in my last year of doctoral school and I was singing Anatole in a production of Vanessa up there and she liked what she heard. She came backstage and talked to me and we talked about Northwestern and she found out that my grandma had been a a scientist and we got on very well. I never thought that that would lead further on. But you know what? She got me into that program. She got me into that finals. She was the one who pulled that off. But I had a big obstacle. We, Stars of Tomorrow, traipsed up these back stairs to the restaurant upstairs for the the reception. At the top of the stairs stands Lee Shannon, the director, looking pretty mean. And he says, Let's be clear. I don't want you in my program. I didn't want you in my program. I didn't want you in my finals. I have no use for you in the program. You will not embarrass me on any runouts, on anything to do with this. You can take part in the language program, in all that we have to offer, but you will not represent the young artist program here. That's pretty clear, pretty clear. And I was pretty shaken up. In the next course of, not the one year he said that I would only survive in, not the second year, but the third year, the third year, you're only allowed to be in it three years. By then, I had sung more roles than anybody else in the Opera Center. In the main stage, I was singing repertoire that was supposed to be contracted to outside young artists elsewhere, all because of Artist Kranich. And all because I was just too stupid to quit. Thank you.
0: All right. Well, that was a good night, huh? Yeah. So, um, the next night we have, we're actually, we've made a decision that we're not going to have this in the summertime because the problem is is a it's hard to get the storytellers b, it's actually hard for us to get people to come because it's summer so the next time we're gonna do this is actually in the fall and the next topic the theme that we're working off of is the outsider stories of being on the outside looking in so if you have a story where that theme seems to fit with you Uh, contact me let me know and you'd be more than welcome to come up here and tell your story can we give another round of applause for all the storytellers (laughs) and storytellers make your way out please so um, I hope that you will take a little bit of time to uh, go and see them and to just uh, thank them for giving of their time uh, tonight. These are all, if you want to hear more of these stories, you may not know this, but almost all of these stories are posted online. So you can go back, you can listen to them, uh, and you can hear them. And there have been some amazing stories that have been told right up here on this stage. And uh, maybe sometime you'll be that person who tells that story. I hope that you will. I hope that you all have a wonderful evening, and thanks again for coming. Good night.